In the middle of my time as a student at Brigham Young University, Idaho, I had a particularly emotionally jarring semester. One of the classes that I took was a contemporary literature class where we read books from the 1950s through current day. And one of the novels that we read was Beloved by Toni Morrison. If you've never read Beloved, it is a haunting novel set in the uh, Americas during uh, the antebellum period and into the Civil War period. And it is based on a true story of a woman named Margaret Garner. Margaret Garner, Garner escaped slavery and then was captured by slave catchers. And when she saw the slave catchers, she uh, attempted to kill her children rather than subject them to the hands of slavery. In the real story of Margaret Garner, uh, the fact is that she failed in that attempt to uh, to commit uh, to commit uh, uh, to kill her children, and her children were sold back into slavery, uh, and she was put on trial and put to death. And in the story that Toni Morrison writes, she successfully kills uh, a child who then comes back from the dead years later. Uh, it is a gut-wrenching novel about the horrors of slavery, the ever-presence of the past, and uh, the people who dealt with it the most. At the same time, I was taking a class on history of the Civil War. This class was taught by a professor who was going to retire at the end of the semester uh, and uh, was kind of deeply rooted in the way that he wanted to teach history of the Civil War. And it was an interesting case study in reading a textbook that was assigned for the class that directly contradicted what the professor wanted to teach in the class. I remember reading the first several chapters. We did a lot of reading in that class. And over and over and over, the author of the textbook that we read uh, indicated that every single element that led up to the Civil War was connected in one form or another to slavery. And so on the first day of class, after we had done the initial reading, uh, the professor uh, got up in front of the class and said, okay, folks, can you tell me some of the reasons for the Civil War, why the Civil War was fought? And somebody raised their hand and said economics, something that the textbook had mentioned, uh, but had talked about how those economics and the way that the economics of the North and the South were starting to diverge was deeply rooted in slavery. Somebody else raised their hand and talked about the succession crisis, which, of course, uh, based on the textbook and based on historical fact, was initiated because the South was afraid that the election of Abraham Lincoln would lead to the end of slavery. Uh, and then I raised my hand and said, uh, I think it's worth mentioning that slavery was a cause of the Civil War. And uh, I was laughed at in class. Uh, by most of the students who had maybe taken this professor before and by the professor himself. And he said, no, no, that's a common misconception. The Civil War was not about slavery. 
And throughout the class, the textbook continued to say that the Civil War was about slavery, and the professor continued to say that it wasn't. Not just that textbook, but other books that we read throughout the semester. And it was this intense kind of cognitive dissonance throughout the class, where we were reading one thing and studying one thing and, and evaluating the evidence in one capacity, and then uh, actually uh, hearing something totally different in class uh, and something that, that really grew in that, that tension. Uh, now, I want to be clear that I think that there were great insights from this professor. Uh, one of the things he had us do was study bibliographies about the Civil War, uh, describing different books and different takes on the Civil War throughout history. And through that bibliography study, we were able to really root this professor's ideology of the Civil War to a... Um, a trend in Civil War studies that started during World War II uh, and was in many ways a response to World War II. Uh, a lot of anti-war sentiment uh, during World War II led to uh, kind of a, um, a downlook on some of the causes of the Civil War and seeing the fighting both on the side of the North and the side of the South as this great mistake because of anti-war sentiment during World War II. Um, and so it started to downplay, this trend in scholarship started to downplay the uh, impact of slavery in the causes of the Civil War. And we could really see that in the scholarship of this professor, uh, and I found it it's super interesting. But also, quite emotionally jarring to read these graphic descriptions of slavery and their impact on real people's lives uh, in literary form, and then also read uh, in a lot of vivid detail the details of the Civil War and its impact on slavery, uh, and just the, the power dynamics of that period. It was quite a semester, to say the least. On an entirely different note, uh, I was taking a religion class at the time. And in this religion class, uh, the professor encouraged us to ask hard questions of the gospel of Jesus Christ as taught by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, and to find answers to those questions in the scriptures, in the words of living prophets, and in discussion in the class, uh, something that I'm quite grateful for. One of the questions that I asked in that class was about the family, the proclamation to the world that was published by the church in the 90s um, or early 2000s. And uh, specifically the word preside when it comes to the responsibilities of a father in the home, in this vision for the family presented by the family, the proclamation to the world. And my question was, what really does that mean to preside? Because I feel strongly that men and women are, are equal. The family proclamation to the world even uh, attests to the equality of men and women, the equality of the genders in the home, especially. And so what exactly does that mean if it isn't meant to indicate some kind of hierarchy uh, of leadership within the home, some kind of gendered hierarchy? Uh, and I actually sat in this professor's office one day and asked him this question, and he thought about it for a moment, and then he said, uh, you know, Josh, have you ever worked with horses? And I said, you know, 
I guess, a little bit. I've ridden a horse a few times, but I wouldn't say that I'm super familiar with it. I have the horsemanship merit badge, if that counts for anything. And he said, well, if you know anything about horses, you know, uh, the horse is really the one that's in control, right? The rider sits on the horse. You might say that they preside over the horse, but the, the horse itself is what moves the rider forward. And what moves the rider forward and the influence that the rider has is a bit in the horse's mouth that connects to the reins that the rider is holding. And it can't be a forced movement. The rider can't force the horse to do anything. But by pulling on the reins one way or another, or with a certain amount of tension, the horse can move forward. And that it is what it means to preside in the home. Your wife, I wasn't married at the time, but your future wife uh, is the horse. And you, the husband, the father in the home, is the rider, are the rider. I was quite taken aback at this metaphor. <laughs> uh, it brought to mind some of the details of this semester, the unfair power dynamics in the antebellum South and in America writ large. And it brought to mind some of the vivid imagery of the way that people in America, human beings were treated like animals. And it really didn't rub me right to think of my spouse or my future spouse uh, in this capacity or to adopt this definition of what it means to preside in the home, in spite of what I think was a um, genuine uh, and heartfelt attempt to wrestle with this term with me in that, uh, that setting. Welcome to the uh, podcast, folks. Uh, this is the second episode of I Have So Much More to Say. My name is Joshua, and this podcast focuses on religion generally, Christianity more specifically, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints even more specifically, as I think out loud about my faith and the way that it is developing over time. Uh, and on that note, I tell you a little bit about this kind of difficult emotional semester and some of the intellectual tension that I was experiencing at the time, uh, because I think there are multiple ways that I could frame this semester uh, now, uh, years later. I could uh, look back at some of these uh, characters in this story of my semester, uh, the retiring professor of American history, the uh, professor and ecclesiastical leader in the religion class, uh, as an example of toxic Mormonism, as something that uh, is deeply ingrained in what it means to be a Mormon or a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and something that I don't want to continue to associate with. On the contrary, I could think of it as a uh, important lesson in intellectual and spiritual tension, 
not something that I want to associate with every element of or want to incorporate every element of into my life or my framework for the gospel, for religion, for my faith, for power, for the home, for family, for history, but something that nonetheless played an important role in me wrestling with these topics. I guess a third way that I could interpret this is uh, a lesson in the higher way of Mormonism. That while the world may view history in a certain way or view family dynamics in a certain way, I can adopt the higher truths of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as taught to me in a church education system, uh, and that can be countercultural to the ways of the world. Now, I uh, have sort of chosen the, the second route, and I want to get into a little bit as to why and how that applies to my broader spiritual or faith journey, or as I'm about to refer to it, thingy, because I don't know if it really uh, is a journey or a crisis or, or what have you. Uh, but the way that things like this are contextualized in my life and the way I see them contextualized in other people's lives uh, brings me to uh, something that was said in the novel The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, something that I think about quite often, also something that was introduced to me at BYU-Idaho. I'll read you the quote and then tell you a little bit about uh, why I think this applies here. Uh, Lewis says, that is why, at the end of all things, when the sun rises here and the twilight turns to blackness down there, the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost, we were always in hell. And both speak truly. The great divorce that is spoken of by C.S. Lewis is the separation of heaven and hell. It's set in a sort of afterlife where the main character, the narrator, is experiencing the afterlife and viewing things like heaven and hell and getting some guidance and, and seeing some Christian symbols. And uh, I, I really like this insight in the novel that those who make it to heaven, they'll look back at the road that they were taking and they'll think that that was heaven the, the entire time. And Lewis says that they're correct. Even the bad times, even the toxic times, even the elements that felt like hell in the moment, when they look back at the end of that long journey, it will appear as if it was just another building block on the street of heaven. And those who go the other way, who go to hell in this case, um, they would look back and see even the good moments, even the, uh, the happy moments that maybe felt heavenly in the moment as something that was leading them ultimately to hell. And I think this is applicable not just to heaven and hell uh, and not just in a theological sense in general, but really to the kind of endpoints of our mind journeys, our philosophies, our politics, uh, where we end up in relation to the faith traditions that we grow up in uh, or not. 
Uh, and you could think about uh, people who maybe leave the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I certainly do a lot. And the stories that they tell, the experiences that they tell. And you, uh, if you are familiar with this, might have a certain perspective on what they say. I know I sometimes listen to those stories and I think, well, maybe you don't have to interpret it that way. Maybe that bishop who said that thing to you uh, was wrong, or maybe they meant something other than what you interpreted. I also see sometimes people on the flip side of things, somebody who is a uh, all the way Mormon, so to speak, somebody who always uh, is committed to the church looking back and and they kind of glaze over maybe the, the the rougher spots. They might not even recognize that some of the kind of toxic things that are brought up by former members of the church uh, even happen or even mean anything close to what those former members of the church mean. I think both of these people, as C.S. Lewis says, uh, to, to apply C.S. Lewis's quote, are right that the things that either drove them into further commitment in the church or out of commitment to the church truly are the that path the entire time, no matter how many like swirls or bends in the road there were. Uh, but I also think both of these groups are blinded by their perspective. They're not seeing the times when the path wasn't to the end point that they got to. And they are emphasizing, even in their own memories, the path uh, that laid, led to where they ultimately arrived. And I think this is something that uh, we all need to be aware of, that no matter where we've like ended up, whatever conclusions we've made, we might look back and start to overlook the evidence that might have led us to other conclusions. And I think that it's valuable, in fact, essential to, to try to not be so blinded, uh, but also to acknowledge that we probably will be uh, and to, to find ways to create our own personal narrative in a way that's productive to us in spite of all of the complexity of the path itself. This is kind of how I have been framing my faith experience over the last few years. And I want to get into this episode as a way to kind of describe who it is that is on the other end of this podcast, who it is you're listening to, what I am going through, uh, and have been going through and plan to continue to go through a kind of snapshot of the the path that I'm taking so that you can understand what to expect and you can you can kind of see what what's there. Now, uh, years after those kind of rougher semesters, uh, but a few years ago from now, uh, I fell off what I've described sometimes as a spiritual cliff. Uh, I've always, previous to this spiritual cliff, felt quite connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the spirituality uh, in the flavor of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, I felt very connected to God. 
I felt very sure in my testimony of my Heavenly Father and of Jesus Christ and of the church that was established by Jesus Christ in my, uh, in my understanding and then restored through the prophet Joseph Smith. I felt very much like I had frequent interactions with uh, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, that I received personal revelation and personal inspiration. But then kind of suddenly, a few years ago, it, it all kind of stopped. I stopped feeling the feelings that I was feeling before. When I knelt down to pray, I stopped feeling like there was anybody on the other end of that prayer. I stopped feeling like I was receiving any sort of direct inspiration from God. And there are a lot of factors that go into this, and it's something that I rehash in my mind uh, often. Uh, one of those factors, though, is that there was an important decision in my life that I felt like I needed the guidance of my Father in Heaven for. And I prayed about it. I fasted about it. My wife prayed and fasted about it. And we felt sort of like we received revelation. At least we felt all the same signs of revelation that we had felt in the past. I felt spiritually confident in the decision that I made. And then it didn't work out. Now, I think there are lots of ways that this can be interpreted. And I'm not sure I'm ready to commit to a given interpretation. It may be that someday I look back on my life and I look at this event as sort of a starting point in my road out of the church. Or it may be that I look back and I see this point as a time in which the Lord answered my prayer in a new way and led me on a, a journey, a path to uh, find a renewed faith, a new way to experience God. Honestly, I'm somewhat frightened about what I'll be like when I reach that conclusion. And so for now, I've sort of been toying with this idea of enjoying or at least fully engaging with the path without, with, with, without embracing the urge to define that path in full. And what that means in practice sometimes means that I am more fully feeling like I'm on the path uh, toward one way or another. Uh, in fact, there are times when I feel so fully committed to the, the church doctrine that I was always committed to before, even though I don't feel it in the way that I felt before. There are other times when I feel so fully committed against uh, the church doctrine that I've been taught from my youth. And sometimes, and maybe this is crazy, but I feel like I feel both of those things at once. 
that makes me think too of uh, the story of, of Abraham in the Bible. Uh, but before I get there, uh, I want to talk a little bit about how I've responded to this path and how I've kind of strategized what to do about it. Uh, and I, I share this with you mostly to think through it myself again, uh, as I think through it often, uh, but also maybe it can help somebody if you're experiencing something like this as well. After a, a period of maybe what I would term a, quite a faith crisis, uh, I made a decision to commit more fully to religious and spiritual practices. In part, this is, uh, I think, an exercise in faith in the uh, the words of, of Jesus in um, John chapter 7, verse 17. He says, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether I speak of God or whether I speak of myself. And so I thought, you know, <laughs> I suddenly fell off this spiritual cliff. I also stopped feeling like I believed in the church, but even in the most core things. Some people talk about their faith crises and they're like, hey, I uh, don't know if I believe in the church anymore, but I absolutely believe in God or I absolutely believe in Jesus. When I fell off this cliff, I, I didn't feel like I believed in Jesus anymore. I didn't feel like I believed in a God anymore. And still, I look at some of those things and I think, I want to believe those things. In many senses, I choose to believe those things. But when I'm in the quiet moments of my life and I think, do I feel like I believe it? Do I actually believe those things? I just don't. I've fallen off this sort of spiritual cliff. But in the midst of that spiritual cliff, I've decided to take those words of Jesus um, seriously and other words throughout like Latter-day Saint scripture seriously and um, guidance from prophets, apostles, from youth leaders throughout my, my life um, to say like, hey, I'm gonna try the virtue of the word of God. I'm going to experiment upon the word. I'm going to plant the seed of the word and uh, see if it begins to expand my bosom. Uh, and I, I want to acknowledge that that might take a long time, uh, that the timeline of God is not our timeline. And the timeline just of life isn't the timeline that we necessarily would always want for ourselves, the timeline of the universe, so to speak, or, or the timeline of what we're able to do, the, uh, the speed at which we're able to go intellectually or even physically is sometimes not the speed at which we we want the speed that we want so i'm willing to do, to to you know wait this out as long as it takes however i'm still trying to figure out if there ever is a deadline if there ever is a point at which i say hey 
even though I've committed myself more fully to my worship at church and in the temple, my study of the scriptures, my study of church history and doctrine, my prayer practices, even though I've been doing that all this time, nothing has happened. I still don't feel like I believe now I'm just on my way out. I'm still grappling with, with what that might look like. I've had ideas, uh, but I've also challenged those ideas. Uh, I've also thought like, hey, you know, I've set up this kind of like timed test for God, and maybe that's not fair, or this timed test for, I don't know, I'll, I'll call it God, even though I, I'm not super comfortable uh, even identifying everything as as uh, as God, uh, like like other folks might. So this this podcast is really a, a way for me to um, process what I learn on this journey. Uh, practically on the journey, uh, I decided uh, two years ago that I was going to read the Bible with new eyes, trying not to assume that I knew anything about it or assume that any of the things, the frameworks that I previously had are true. Uh, that coincided with the Come Follow Me study that we do in the church. Uh, so I took a deep dive through the Old Testament and the New Testament in a new translation, one that I never looked at before. And I did lots of deep dives into the scholarship of the Bible uh, and what it truly means. And the, the Bible has shifted for me in, in what its place is in my life. And it's also become sort of an obsession uh, as far as my intellectual interest goes. And now I've moved my attention to the Book of Mormon and to church history, things that I've shelved for a long time. One thing that has been said to me in the past or that I've encountered, an idea that I've encountered in many different facets, is that there are certain sources of information or truth or whatever, what have you, ideas that are poisonous, that are bad. I, I hear this on both sides of the kind of spectrum of uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, I've been told by uh, general authorities, there was a general authority on my mission who said this to us, that uh, anti-Mormon literature is as evil and pernicious as pornography. On the flip side, uh, as you might expect, I've been told by ex-Mormons or some of these very, uh, these very uh, evil people, according to this uh, this one general authority, um, that uh, Mormon doctrine is indoctrinating, that it's evil, that it's poisonous, and of course, people on like the evangelical Christian side of things, uh, but. I've gotten to a point where I feel like nothing is evil <laughs> and I'm open to anything. And I feel like I've gotten to a point and, and maybe you hear this and you say, well, he's pretty prideful here and, and maybe he needs some correction or, or some saving from whatever uh, poison you think is out there. Um, but I just don't see anything as really, uh, really poisonous anymore. Uh, I say, I say that because, uh, I have kind of opened the box 
uh so to speak i've read things like the the popular uh ex-mormon roots roots out of the church for example the um ces letter i don't know if you've ever heard of this uh if you've if you've if you're in like mormon adjacent circles you've probably heard of this but i was shocked when i read the ces letter that it wasn't uh like an underhanded letter from ces authorities that reveals like the underbelly of the church that's the way I, i'd heard it talked about at some point i don't know why or just like i don't know i assume that's what it was because it was like uh just talked about as something like that is testimony breaking or whatever um i've read the ces letter now um i've um watched a lot of like TikToks where people talk about like what would probably be called like anti-mormon ideas um and like really just challenges historical challenges to the church um and and things like that um and for the most part i've kind of said well i've kind of like evaluated claims uh of, of my own accord you know said hey you know what that sounds like this um and i don't think it's really that much of a problem or that sounds just untrue based on what i know otherwise i'm probably not going to give that piece of it the that much brain space um so I, i've certainly done that sort of thing but for the most part on like questions like the the uh veracity of the book of mormon or the um the virtue of the early church leaders or the um whether i think there's some kind of conspiracy in the church or what indoctrinization is looks like in the church these are things that i've mostly shelved during a two-year focus on the bible they're things that of course i hear and that i'm not opposed to anymore in the way that i used to be but uh for two years through the bible i've really haven't cared in the slightest about those things and i've just said to myself you know I'll dig into church history and the Book of Mormon itself once I get out of the Bible. And once we get to that, the Book of Mormon and then the Doctrine of Covenants and church history in the Come Follow Me schedule. So now uh, it's Book of Mormon year in Come Follow Me. Uh, and so I have decided to um, immerse myself in the Book of Mormon and in church history uh i'm open to any perspectives but i'm simultaneously quite picky about scholarship and about what it means to be uh uh to view history through a critical lens uh and uh honestly both the uh most common sources of anti-mormon literature that i've encountered haphazardly and the most common sources of sort of apologetic content, uh, content or defenses of the church, both of them kind of lack, I think, in those areas. Uh, Mormon studies and studies into the history of the church is definitely a newer field than Christian, Christian studies or the study of the Bible. And so I think there's a lot of growing that needs to be done in there in general. But I do want to kind of immerse myself uh, in that and throughout these next two years. So this year with the Book of Mormon and then next year with the Doctrine and Covenants and Church History and Pearl of Great Price to some extent. Um, I'd like to try to figure out what I think on some of these historical issues. And then, and I think this is an important secondary question, what, what I think the facts are, and then the secondary question is, 
what I think those facts mean for me and mean for the continuation of the church. Because one of the things that uh, I've, I've kind of imagined, I read this in a book somewhere, is this kind of, um, th this kind of pendulum, right? With things stacking up on either side uh, for like, stay in the church, leave the church, whatever. Is the church a net benefit to the world or a net detractor from the world? Uh, and sometimes I think like, hey, you know, if the Book of Mormon is not true, like it didn't come forth the way Joseph Smith said it came forth, that he was uh, a fraud, a huckster, whatever, um, then well, it still has a lot of good in it. And even though like the like the fraud of Joseph Smith is on one side of this pendulum or this balance, balance is the better word than pendulum. There are still other things that kind of push it to the other side. I've even thought, and this is me kind of entrenched in me, um, really going gung-ho into my church uh, participation. I've even thought that if the book, if I found out like by the voice of an angel or by the voice of God, of a surety, that the Book of Mormon was a lie invented by Joseph Smith and that the priesthood authority was um, t a total lie invented by Joseph Smith and early church leaders. Um, I still don't know if I would leave the church. I think it's an ultimate possibility, of course, but I don't think that would be the thing that says to me, hey, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be in this church. I think some things that root me in the church are more that I need a venue through which to explore God, for which to understand God, and through which to understand um, wh what I think God represents, even if he's not this like corporeal or, or even like well-defined human-like being. Um, I, I need something to kind of frame the way I journey through the world intellectually and spiritually. Uh, and the church does give me that. I don't think it's perfect. And I'm not opposed to the idea that I might get that elsewhere better. In fact, finding out that I can get that elsewhere better is more likely to lead me out of the church than some kind of historical claim or something like that. Um, where was I going with this? You're getting it though. You're, this is all one take podcast. You're gonna, you're gonna hear a lot of this. Some of this like thinking. Um. But yeah, I want to evaluate some of these claims. I want to kind of see where I stand on them. And importantly, yeah, this is where I was getting at. Uh, what my conclusions actually mean to me in my faith journey. Uh, so. That's really uh, who the podcaster is. Uh, and I think that will hopefully give you kind of a sense of what you can expect out of this podcast. I'm going to be engaging hard questions. Um, but I'm also going to be engaging fun questions. I'm also going to be engaging assigned questions. I'm also going to be following along with the Come Follow Me study. Uh, I'm also going to be um, going through this year, something that, that that I've decided to do this year is do a year of prayer, uh, in part because coinciding with this kind of faith crisis and then weird faith journey or this falling off of a faith cliff, 
prayer has kind of fallen out of my spiritual practice altogether. Uh, and I hesitate to say that because I feel like some people out there might might think, oh, there it is. That's why you're not uh, feeling the spirit anymore. That's why you don't feel faith like you have a lot of faith anymore uh, because you're not praying. Uh, but no, I don't think that's a good uh, a good argument at all. But I do think that prayer is an important part of a spiritual life, and I just don't feel very spiritual. And so it's something that I, I feel like I want to dive into. And so what you might also hear on this podcast is kind of my adventures in prayer um, and my adventures exploring prayer in different ways than I have before. Uh, when I say my year of prayer, I've kind of written this out, and I want my year of prayer to be a year of more prayer, more meaningful prayer, and new prayer. And I am not opposed to uh, finding ways to pray that I have never tried before or that even might seem contrary to the way that I've been taught to pray in the past. For just by way of example, in this first week of the year, I've been experimenting with something called Lectio Divina, uh, something that a friend of mine mentioned to me, a Catholic friend of mine mentioned to me. Uh, it's a Catholic practice. Um, and uh, then I kind of rediscovered it through this app called Hallow, uh, which is a mostly Catholic app. They kind of uh, market it to Christians in general, but uh, it's quite Catholic. But Lectio Divina is prayer through the scriptures, where you take a verse of scripture and then you go through this process uh, for it. Um, I've got it written down so you can kind of I can tell you what I what I mean by this. Um, okay, yeah. So the first process is you read the verse of scripture. Second process is you meditate on the verse of scripture. Third is you pray about the verse of scripture or in response to the verse of scripture. And then fourth, you contemplate uh, and you kind of sit in the presence of God. On the Hallow app, there are like guided Lectio Divinas uh, so that it, there's one each day so that it kind of guides you through this kind of meditative prayer process. I found it quite um, uh, quite enlightening, quite uh, calming, quite, uh, it brings peace. Uh, and I've actually tried it, the Catholics wouldn't like this, but I tried it on a, a paragraph from the title page of the Book of Mormon uh, this week, because that was the Come Follow Me study. And I was like, hey, you know, here's some uh, something that in my faith tradition, we consider scripture. Uh, I'm going to try it with that. And I found that quite uh, enlightening. Uh, so you'll get some of that maybe in this uh, in this in this podcast. Uh, like I said, you you'll, you might get talks on things that are assigned to me. I really love uh, when the leaders of my church ask me to speak in church or ask me to teach a class. Uh, and don't worry if you've you've heard some of this and you're like, wow, he's kind of uh, he's kind of off the rails. Uh, I'm very aware of audience. I do like to push my audience a little bit when I when I speak or when I teach, but uh, I'm aware of the audience and try to stick to what my audience needs, what my audience uh, expects, and what my audience uh, what the like conventions of the genre, like the genre of a church talk or a genre of of a. Um, a lesson in Sunday school or a lesson for the deacon's quorum, which is a calling that I have in my ward. Um, but along those lines, I usually have, 
here's the name of the podcast, so much more to say after those experiences or like after I've prepared what I'm planning to say to those audiences in those genres. Uh, and so in this podcast, I want to kind of share the thoughts that don't make it into those because of the limits of the setting and the limits of the audience and those kinds of limits. So if you are like in my ward, uh, it would be great if I got some people with, with, within the ward who were interested in, in hearing the kind of extended cuts of these. Uh, or if you just want to um, kind of spend some time hearing what I have to say on the topics that are assigned to me to say, like teaching a class or something or giving a talk, uh, and then and then be ready to see like, this is what Josh really wanted to say. Uh, although those I bet are gonna be more on the, um, the pro-faith side of things. Uh, I also, you know, just plan to talk about whatever topics come to mind. And I expect those to be religious topics. Uh, I thought about saying, or politics or philosophy, really only so far as it connects to religion. Religion is the thing that uh, is constantly on my mind. Um, I want to finish the podcast by talking a little bit about um, some frameworks for thinking that I've been thinking about the last uh, the last few months. Um, at BYU-Idaho, this actually connects back to what I was studying at BYU-Idaho. Uh, a lot of English professors uh, will assign their classes um, to read something about thinking or about writing or about faith. And like, I found that there's always this like kind of similar pattern. It'll be like, here are like three, um, here are three, what, what do I want to say? Like three stages of faith or three stages of intellectual development or three forms of thinking that, that we've been through. Uh, and, and a little while ago, I was trying to remember all of these, plus some more that I've like picked up over the last couple of years. Uh, and I just want to kind of uh, share these with you and, and how I think they kind of connect to each other. And then where I kind of see myself within these. Uh, and, then, uh, and then I'll probably wrap up today's episode. Uh, so a, a couple of these. One of these from Bruce C. Hafen uh, in a book that I read called Faith is Not Blind. Uh, I had a professor at BYU-Idaho who was Bruce C. Hafen's daughter. Uh, and then after later after I had graduated, right around when this faith crisis thing started up, actually, uh, this book came out by Bruce C. Hafen, and she recommended it. And so uh, I read through it. And here's, here's what he has. He has this uh, three-stage uh, process of faith, or I guess journey of faith, whatever you want to call it. Uh, simplicity before complexity. This stage one. Stage two is complexity. And then stage three is simplicity beyond complexity. Here's a quote where he describes this. Stage one is the simplicity before complexity, when our faith is innocent and untested by experience. You receive no witness, wrote Moroni, until after the trial of your faith. Ether 12, 6. Stage two is complexity when we encounter a trial of our faith and the gap between the real and the ideal. We, uh, here we struggle, or here we may struggle, with many forms of uncertainty and opposition. Stage three is the simplicity beyond complexity when we learn from the experience, from experience how to develop a settled, informed 
tried and true perspective, a new simplicity more grounded and realistic than before. So that's one of these. Another one of these, and I think they all are kind of similar. There's overlap in all of these. This is something called Perry's Scheme. And this is based on some research by a, a man whose last name is Perry. I cannot remember his first name for the life of me right now. Um, but it's just about like intellectual development of, of adults during their college years. Uh, and his, his phases, I'll tell you, are dualism and then multiplicity and then relativism and then commitment within relativism. That's Perry's scheme. And I'll, I'll give you kind of, I don't think this was directly from him. This was a summary that somebody wrote. One is dualism. Knowledge is received, not questioned. Students feel there is a correct answer to be learned. Second is multiplicity. There may be more than one solution to a problem, or there may be no solution. Students recognize that their options matter. Third is relativism. Uh, knowledge is seen as contextual. Students evaluate viewpoints based on source and evidence, and even experts are subject to scrutiny. Fourth is commitment within relativism. Integration of knowledge from other sources with personal experience and reflection. Students make commitment to values that matter to them and learn to take responsibility for committed beliefs. There is a recognition that the acquisition of knowledge is an ongoing activity. Uh, I worked in the Office of Instructional Development as an editor uh, when I was in college, and this was kind of a huge push at BYU-Idaho at the time to kind of um, help students work through these different schemas uh, and ultimately get to commitment within relativism, where they understand the kind of complexity out there in the world, but they find, and I'll use uh, Bruce C. Hafen's wording here to kind of connect these two, they find their tried and true perspective. They develop a settled, informed perspective, a new simplicity, more grounded and more realistic than before. And I think that realisticness comes from what they learn during relativism, uh, when, they, when they realize that everything is contextual and everything um, can be challenged. Uh, one other that I uh, came across uh, at BYU-Idaho, in fact, uh, but is known beyond that, of course, is William Golding in an essay called Thinking as a Hobby. Uh, his is kind of backward, I think, but I think there's there's a lot of connections here as well. So his are, his are in grades, and it starts with grade three. Grade three is emotion. Grade two is logic, ability uh, to identify contradiction. And grade one is commitment to a coherent system of living. And here's a, a quote from his essay that I think uh, encapsulates this. I, too, would be a grade one thinker. So grade one, commitment to a coherent system of living. I was irrelevant at, at the best of times. Political and religious systems, social customs, loyalties, and traditions, they all came tumbling down like so many rotten apples off a tree. This was a fine hobby and a sensible substitute for cricket since you could play it all year round. I came up in the end with what must always remain the justification for grade one thinking, its sign, seal, and charter. I devised a coherent system for living. It was a moral system, which was wholly logical. Of course, as I readily admitted, conversation or conversion of the world to my way of thinking might be difficult since my system did away with a number of trifles, such as big business, centralized government, armies, marriage, 
etc. So here again, we have kind of one middle grade where uh, Golding, and he talks about this in the essay, kind of makes a hobby out of poking holes in people's arguments and kind of tearing down everything everybody has to say. And then that transitions into a third grade, which he calls grade one because he's backwards, uh, which is like commitment to a coherent system of living, even though we know that there's quite a bit of relativism throughout the world. Uh, and then a fourth one that I that I... Uh, discovered probably the most recently. This is by a theologian and philosopher named Brian McLaren, uh, and he calls it the four stages of faith. Uh, and his stages are simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. And I'll put in the show notes a uh, table that describes McLaren's four stages. Uh, somebody else put this together based on his writings, uh, but it includes like different elements of the four stages and, and what they each uh, each, each mean. Uh, I'll focus on one, though. It says faith is, so under dualistic, the first phase, faith is asset to required beliefs. Uh, then faith is, under complexity, means to desired ends. And then faith is, under perplexity, an obstacle to critical thinking. And then faith is, under harmony, a humble, reverent openness to mystery that expresses itself in non-discriminatory love. One of the things I like about McLaren's phases is that it, it really seeks to value other people's perspectives. Um, and I think there's hints of this in all these other phases of, of thinking or processing faith. But um, it, he really focuses on like, once you get to the final stage, you like, fully love and appreciate the the paths other people have chosen even if that's not the the like final conclusion that you have made uh but you're also just like open you hold things a little bit unsurely uh i think that it is um somewhat arrogant of a lot of people to think that they're on the final stage of these <laughs> to be like oh yeah I went through that stage of complexity and now I'm at the simplicity beyond complexity. Or, oh yeah, in college, I went through a relativism, relativism phase based on Perry's scheme, but now I'm in commitment to relativism. Uh, or like McLaren, I, I am committed to harmony. Or uh, in William Golding's case, I am now a grade one thinker. Um, I will fully accept that I'm somewhere in the middle. Uh, and I as I mentioned briefly, I'm kind of nervous about what it will be like to be on the final stage. Uh, but I'm, I think I'm hopeful a little bit that whatever final stage I get to, uh, I'll still have an openness. I'll still have room to be wrong. And I think that's my main criticism of, of um, people on different sides and different angles of the, the Mormon spectrum. You know, I feel like there are um, factions that have been created around Mormonism. Uh, a lot of times you'll hear people refer to these by like adjective Mormon. Uh, so, for example, you may have heard somebody refer to somebody as a true blue Mormon, somebody that's like fully committed or somebody say I'm an all in Mormon. Of course, those two groups of people, true blue Mormons and uh all in Mormons might see that as a pejorative term, since it includes our 
uh, old nickname for the church. Um, and then you've got people who identify maybe as a progressive Mormon. You maybe even hear people say like progmo um, or somebody who says they're a ex-Mormon, ex-mo, or somebody who says they're a post-mo, uh, which has some nuanced differences from, from ex-Mormon, I think. Um, what I want to identify as, at least for now, and, and, and I think I would be arrogant to try to jump too quickly out of this, is an unsure Mormon. That even when I find uh, my coherent system or perspective or way of living or my simplicity beyond complexity, I still want to remain a little unsure. And actually, I do think that is what faith is. Right now, when I look deep down to it, I'm incredibly unsure. Um, and I feel very little faith. But I also feel a lot of interest. And I, I feel a lot of enthusiasm for going through this process. And if you feel like uh, going along with me on this process a little bit, uh, and learning along with me some of the topics in faith and in Mormonism and in scripture and in prayer and really any other topic that comes uh, throughout this year and future years, uh, then subscribe, please, to this podcast on Apple Podcast or on uh, Spotify. Uh, and let me know that you're listening. Let me know what your thoughts are. Let me know what you disagree uh, with or what you agree with or what resonates with you uh, because uh, I, I want to continue this discussion uh, and I want to involve you uh, because I have so much more to say. <laughs>